You are listening to Demise of the Podcast, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, my writing. I am your host, Patrick Attaway, and you are my listener. And yes, I'm talking to you. Today we're located in the luxurious living room of Casa de Attaway. I just went on a walk, had to come in and take a shower. I didn't take as long as of a walk as I usually do because it was hot. And I'm not really in the best shape. I didn't go on a walk since this past weekend because I could not, well, I think I went Monday, but I could not get my wife to go walking with me. And by the time I got off work, my mind was fried and it was time to eat dinner. And after you eat dinner, you don't really want to go on a walk. Of course, I tried, but... Again, Mrs. Attaway was not in the mood for that. In fact, uh, on Tuesday, she was very much not in the mood for it, so I did not suggest it again. Today, I'm going to be discussing Chapter 5, and specifically Dr. Dr. Samuel Kingway. I keep wanting to call him Charles Kingway. I think in one draft, his name was Charles Kingway. But before we get into the book... Let's talk about the book itself. Right now, you can buy Price of the Trinity for $12.50 on Amazon in paperback. And a lot of people have been asking, well, where's the Kindle version? Well, I announced in July, I think it was maybe even earlier than that, that I was only going to release Price in paperback for the first few weeks. And the Kindle version is going to be out with the Charles Price novella. Now, I'm not going to talk about the novella on the podcast, but I will tell you that the Charles Price novella was originally supposed to be my third novel, and I drafted it from 2015 until maybe 2019, but I feel like I stopped writing it in its current form in 2018. Maybe I'm wrong, but... Either way, I worked on it for a while, and I could not make an actual novel out of it. So, it remains at about 130 pages, I want to say. So, it's a fairly long novella. It could be considered a short novel, but you're going to get that for 99 cents with the book. So, it's going to be worth your while. I hate advertising my own wares, but I'm not going to pay anyone else to do it, especially since I'm not reeling in the big bucks from my book sales. In fact, uh, I could possibly buy a a meal at McDonald's with what I've made, a meal for me and my wife, a couple of double quarter pounder meals from McDonald's with what I've made from Price of the Trinity so far. And I have hot tea and it's too hot for me to drink right now. After that walk and that hot shower, I am having a hard time getting my thoughts together. Oh, man. How was your week? Was it good? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I am just doing my work, doing my thing. My best work friend is no longer working with my company anymore, so I don't have anyone to talk to throughout most of the week. We used to chatter on Microsoft Teams throughout the day, helped to blow off steam. It also helped sort of make the work-at-home experience a little less alienating. 
but it didn't really hit me as hard that I'm working from home until he left because we would talk in the office all the time and he used to sit a couple of seats down from me but when he moved upstairs when my company made a huge transition we still talked all the time on teams and I would go up and I'd see him and some of my other co-workers who got moved so I feel pretty alone right now I'm not really sad necessarily, but there is an emptiness, if you will. I have been lying and telling everyone that I moved to Asbestos, Alaska on Twitter, and one person believed me. But I was hoping for more people to believe me, and it seems that when I make posts that are intentionally kind of trolly or just sarcastic or ironic or whatever the things like that that I'm trying to get a reaction out of people I don't get as much reaction as when I just think of something for five seconds and then tweet it and then an hour later I have a hundred people liking and retweeting my shit there was a tweet that I made the other day I guess I'll pull up my Twitter account so I can talk about it with you guys and I promise I'm going to get into this damn book for those of you who are not familiar with the typical format of the podcast, I spend the first 10 minutes shooting the shit with you guys, and then I move on from there. No one has liked my new tweet, so I'm going to delete it. I do that a lot. If no one likes my tweet within the first few minutes of it being up, I delete it, and sometimes I delete it even after that. So, yeah... Remember when Fridays were nothing but writer's lifts and our notifications were eaten up by tags. Hashtag real writers don't miss that shit. And I got 75 likes on that. And then I'm giving up writing, burning my guitars, purging my refrigerator, and moving to Asbestos, Alaska to race giraffes with other hashtag real writers who gave up the craft for the sake of wildlife. That has 67 likes. And a lot of my more serious things or things that I actually care about don't get much attention. But then I made a tweet, just blocked over 100 people. That was a nice lunch break. And I have 117 likes and two retweets and 22 responses. And people seem... for whatever reason, seem to think that every time you block someone, it's some serious thing, and it's really not. Most of the people I block are the people who follow me and then unfollow me after I follow them because they want to boost their followers' numbers, and I keep track of that on an app. So if you follow me and then unfollow me, I'm going to find out. And I've tweeted about that before, and you can really tell that the people who do it just don't give a damn, but... I think it's a behavior that more people need to be aware of and they need to block the people who do that and also condemn them. I used to take screenshots of their profiles and post them on my Instagram story, but I stopped doing that. Not because of any backlash, but just because if I did that all the time, it, it would be hundreds of people, as was the case the other day. So I told someone... I think this morning 
or maybe last night, that once you reach 10,000 followers on Twitter, it does not boost your book sales. I probably sold more books in February with less than 10,000 than I do with 11,000, almost 12,000 now. And it's really about what tweet you make that strikes the iron at the right time, you know. Let me try and take a sip of my tea and see if it burns me. Still really hot. I'm drinking kava stress relief tea. Not because I'm stressed, but because it doesn't have caffeine. It tastes good, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Am I boring you yet? We're going to get into this book right now, okay? Because I'm boring myself. Dr. Samuel Kingway is an old-school professor at Jefferson Tate. Now, there are a few things that you may not realize about this book when you pick it up, and one of them being that Jefferson Tate is based on Morehouse College in Atlanta, which is a historically black college. And the product description on Amazon doesn't detail that. The back of the book doesn't detail that, but the the back of the book does contain a semi-spoiler. So let me read the back to you. Since he discovered his place in the Trinity, Ken refused to conform to Satan's contract with his father, Charles. While attending Jefferson Tate, Ken falls in love with his professor's wife, Shea Kingway, and plots Dr. Samuel Kingway's murder. When you pick this book up, you're going to know Ken's motivation in the first half of the book. So let's get into chapter 5 and discuss Samuel Kingway, shall we? I spent so much time thinking about Jefferson Tate as a place rather than my school. So much happened yesterday that I forgot about what actually scares me. Potential failure. People talk about college like they're on an uphill path that grows steeper with every step until they're climbing a mountain with no peak. When I Will I drown in essays, study projects, and scantrons? This is higher education and my first class is about to start. Walking to the classroom, there's a small line of students waiting against the wall, but there's no one in the room. Do we have to wait for the professor to show up? What happens if I turn on the light and sit down? Dare I be so audacious? Back in 2010, my first class was a government course, and it was at 9.30 in the morning, and around 9 o'clock, I got there. I probably got there before 9, but I waited outside the classroom, and so did every other student until one guy just walked in and turned on the lights. Nobody knew that you could just walk into a college classroom that was empty and sit there. We thought you had to wait for the professor. No one says anything. They file in behind me and we sit without speaking while staring ahead. Will our professor write notes on that dry erase board only to remove them as he squeaks the pen across the blank space? Perhaps he'll talk and test us on whatever random facts he spews. We'll struggle to find places to read the unrealistically large assignments and books we paid too much money for and have no interest in. I had more than one high school teacher tell me that 
the professors don't care about you getting the information that they're going to talk, you're going to take notes on what they say, or they're going to write notes on the board. And what I wrote about the professor erasing what they were saying as they were writing it, one of my teachers claimed that their professor did that. Now, at the most, I had a professor who would write notes and then erase them after he was done, and he was done speaking about them. But most professors in my English courses, they either gave us handouts, which is not what I expected in college. They had PowerPoints, which that was a bit more rare. Or we just discussed the text, and then they wrote notes on the board, and they generally left them up there until the end of the class. He walks in, clearing his throat while resting a binder and notebook on the podium. Feeling around for a pen in his blazer, the professor pulls out a sheet of paper and begins announcing our names. We give the roll before he looks at the room and shakes his head. I don't like this room, he says. These desks. Can everybody please move in a circle? That's how we'll begin each class. As soon as you come in, just move the desk around. I want to see everybody. Already breaking a tradition we followed without question in grade school, we mumble and coordinate ourselves into more of a jagged U formation. Nodding as we sit back, he sits in a chair in the middle. Crossing his legs, he appears too relaxed to teach us much of anything. I'm Dr. Samuel Kingway, he says. Welcome to Jefferson Tate. This is English 1101, and I'd rather be teaching all 3,000 and 4,000 level courses, but administration requires all professors to handle part of the freshman load. They also have a policy about not printing out paperwork and handouts for students as some sort of backwards way to save the rainforest. By God... We're out of the jungle, and I don't give a goddamn what President Hayes says. Opening the binder, he tosses a stack of papers to the nearest desk, motioning for the poor recipient to pass it along. Dr. Kingway isn't aware our butts are clenched enough to crush diamonds. We also have to read stuff I didn't want to put on the syllabus, which is going around the room right now. Those fools want me to teach Sherman Alexie and Julia Alvarez. Uh, you. White boy. What's your name? Ken, I say. Ken? Ken Price. Mr. Price, Dr. Kingway points. Did you come here to read a racist who the white academics give a free pass because he grew up on a reservation eating government cheese? I sure as shit didn't. This is Jefferson Tate. We have a bell tower that chimes every hour that we erected to warn us when the KKK was showing up with torches. We had a few other problems to worry about. Race isn't the issue here anymore, people. You did not come to Jefferson Tate just to read slave narratives either. We're going to read whoever's worth reading regardless of their skin color or sex. This is 2010. I'm not going to make anyone in this room feel guilty for being who they are, because I went through that when I came here. 
I guess I need to address what he just said. First of all, if you didn't catch the reference, I called Sherman Alexi a racist. Well, Dr. Kingway did, but I kind of believe that too. If you've ever read Sherman Alexi, half of what he talks about is the is this sort of guilt trip that he tries to place on white people for the treatment of Native Americans. And believe me, I have plenty of guilt about the way my ancestors treated Native Americans and whatnot, and I believe that they are still being mistreated. And when I was in my English 3000 course, which all English majors have to take, I wrote a paper about a Sherman Alexi short story. And I made a huge discovery on my, my part about the disenfranchisement of Native Americans in the 20th century and how they were treated, the rate of mental illness and suicides. I didn't know that, and I wouldn't know that if it weren't for Sherman Alexi. But I still don't like Sherman Alexi. Uh, I don't have a problem with Julie Alvarez. His attitude oddly puts me at ease. Maybe he'll spend each class making soapbox speeches like this, and it'll be an easy air. At the same time, I think he'll teach us something worthwhile. I'll read something that'll impact me rather than feel like homework. I'm not sure what being an English major entails yet, but I see a gusto here that I like. See, initially, Ken really likes Dr. Kingway. And Dr. Kingway, throughout the first part of the book, makes it seem like he likes Ken. Now, as we go through his character, I'm going to say this. Dr. Kingway is not wrong about his opinions. He's not wrong about his stance or his viewpoints. He has a right to his own opinion, and I thought about that very thoroughly as I wrote him and developed him over the past few years. So, from a reader's perspective, if you're rooting for Ken, which you really shouldn't be, but people tend to root for the protagonist. Dr. Kingway is the antagonist. And he's not really a nice person. He's not necessarily a good person. But he's not wrong. His perspective developed as a result of oppression, racism, violence. And he worked very hard to get into his position. So, I do not condemn him for being leery of Ken Price. And... Spoiler alert, he's right to be leery of Ken Price. Your first reading assignment is that syllabus, he says. There you'll find all your other classwork and due dates. I will not remind you of them. It's your responsibility to show up with the reading material and plant it in your head for discussion. I don't do quizzes, and I only do a midterm and final because it's required. This class is supposed to teach you about critical thinking and analysis. If I give you a C on your paper, be thankful, because there are other professors who will go easy on freshmen. 
I do not believe in pussyfooting here. I'm going to prepare you for the next four or five years of your life. Rising from his seat, Dr. Kingway goes to the podium and returns with the baton, handing it to the same gentleman he threw the papers to. Kingway sits back down, and that poor boy looks at the glittering stick in his hand in awe. What did it mean? Whoever has the baton, he says, announce your name, tell us where you're from, your major, and one interesting thing about yourself. I'm Jeremy, the first one says, from Baltimore. I'm undecided right now. My father, grandfather, and great-grandfather are all Jefferson Tate alumni. My name is Rob. My mom lives in Seattle. Dad lives in Ardmore, Oklahoma. I'm a business major, and I want to start a coffee shop that specializes in espresso. Keith, I live with my uncle in Birmingham because my parents passed away when I was five. I'm an art history major. Um, I say, Ken Price, I'm an English major. Oh, Dr. Kingway points again. So I'll be seeing more of you, Mr. Price. Now... I think everybody in this classroom is wondering the same thing. Why Jefferson Tate? Here we have it, folks. The moment you've been all waiting for. The real answer isn't going to fly. In fact, pissing off my father would only spit in Dr. Kingway's face. Someone else could have gone in here in my place. I didn't want to leave Georgia, of course. But I didn't want to go to Athens because it's boring. Tech is too specialized. Georgia State isn't distinguished enough. Barry, Mercer, and Columbus State weren't even in the running. Some people claim that Jefferson Tate is the African-American Harvard, so... Diversity, I say. I'm here for diversity. Winking. Kingway accepts my answer and gestures for the guy next to me to start. Once the awkward you completes, he looks around as if making notes of our faces again and stands with a wave, as if telling us he's through with this classroom for today. We seem to recall our high school days and rush out with our things still hanging from book bags. Mr. Price, Kingway stops me in the hall. Sir, I just want to say, he smirks, welcome to Jefferson Tate. Everyone here is happy to have you. If you're ever discouraged, come by my office. I promise that this campus has enough diversity to keep you entertained for more than your undergrad years. Oh, thank you, I say. I get why you're here now, but why are you an English major? My father's an attorney. My uncle was an attorney. Their father was an attorney. I want to be something else. Bravo, Mr. Price. He nods and walks away. And there we have our introduction to Dr. Samuel Kingway. When do we see him again? Well, not in the classroom. After a little kerfuffle in the first few chapters with Leslie, which I will not spoil on the podcast, Leslie invites Ken over to his house to meet his parents and have dinner. And I guess I just need to read the whole chapter. Is that okay with you? Okay. After my second class, I walk across campus towards my dorm. I expected a lot of the students to look at me everywhere I go, but they're not interested. 
That's disappointing, I guess. After my limelight as the high school badass, things cooled down by the time I graduated. My peers avoided me again, but without bothering to talk behind my back. I walked through the crowded hallways like anyone else, a number ready to be balanced off. With father and I avoiding one another, I looked forward to some attention. I guess Amy was it. Amy is mentioned in the first few chapters. Ugh. How long will my friendship last with Leslie? Until the year's out? He'll have time to forget me over summer. Maybe then I'll transfer to another school. The more I'm here as a stranger, the less I feel at home. Leslie's watching a YouTube video when I walk in, and he masses the spacebar on the Mac and raises to greet me in one motion. I didn't expect to see him in here, but he's more of a social creature. It's like he's waiting to see me. You hungry? He asks. I could eat, I say. You didn't wait for me, did you? I saw the dining hall on the way back. My mom's making roast tonight. She slow cooks it for 14 hours. My godfather's going to be there. You want me to meet your parents? Dude, you saved my life. I hope this isn't going to be one of those shadow situations like in the movies. It's nice to have a friend, but Leslie can't keep bringing up the fact that I saved him. I had to edit this line just now. Just to keep from spoiling it for you folks. Our lives. It didn't matter that you were there, Leslie. But I was there, and I owed him a lot of money. Can't tell you how much that worried me. All right, I sling the bag on my back. I sling the bag on my bed. Folks, I am not a professional reader. Just this once. Let's not make it weird. We take a bus. A, bu- a bus. They took a bus, folks. We take a bus across town near Emory. Maybe I could go there. If I ever get sick, the hospital's right there. Leslie maintains the quiet I enjoy while we ride. He says what he needs and doesn't bullshit around. After a little walk, we end up at a white house with a pretty carport made of bricks painted to match the house. A Cadillac sits behind the Pontiac under an awning, which must belong to the Godfather. That's an odd concept to me because my fathers didn't bring their friends to dinner. The only friend my father, of my father that I knew was Murray Grone, whose father runs Central Network. Everyone with a TV knows Walter Grone because he's all over Central Network news, but Murray was too gruff for that. I suppose if I had a godfather, it'd be him. I like him more than father, anyway. So we have one of our first instances of Ken mentioning Murray Grone. Murray is a central character in Demise of the Trinity, and so is Walter in some sense. I'm going to take a sip of tea if you don't mind. So, this is all connecting back to Demise. And again, you don't have to read Demise to understand this book, but it doesn't hurt. A white-haired man with a salt-and-pepper mustache answers the door and embraces Leslie without a word. So people do hug in real life. Reaching a hand to me, the gentleman introduces himself as Tennessee and holds the door open for us. A salty, simmering smell welcomes us. The woman, I assume, is Leslie's mother, drains potatoes and looks over her shoulder to throw a hay baby out. He moved out yesterday. 
yet his parents treat him as if Leslie returned from deployment in Iraq. She kisses his cheek before pouring milk into the pot and hitting the potatoes with a masher. I'm pretty sure my mother hasn't cooked since she married father. This scene makes me wonder what I missed, yet I also feel like an intruder. Hello, Leslie, a voice calls from the dining room. My butt clenches when I see it's Dr. Kingway walking in the room, ready to slap Leslie on the shoulders. How the hell did I not know this? Why didn't we go over our schedules together so Leslie could point out his godfather was my English professor? Can I make it through the window without seeming rude? Mr. Price, he says, I had a suspicion. You were the white roommate Tennessee told me about over the phone before I came over. A supreme pleasure to see you. Nice to see you, doctor, I say. Shea, he calls. Come and hug your godson. If this woman is Dr. Kingway's wife, he'll he's probably buried diamonds in his backyard. He's got to be nearing 60, and this woman wasn't even born when he was 20. I can't say she's a gold digger in that Michelle Obama dress, but those olive eyes hit my soul when Shea Kingway walks over to Leslie and move and more than glances at the stranger standing next to him. And this is Ken Price, Kingway points, my new favorite student. An unexpected pleasure, her handcuffs mine. People keep saying pleasure, and I didn't know what it meant until I looked at her. My mind never melts when I see a woman. There are billions of people, and there's no woman so beautiful you can't forget. Shea stands several inches taller than me, and I thought her husband was intimidating. I'm so sorry, I say. I'm not used to meeting so many people, and I wasn't expecting to see my professor at dinner. You'll forget he's here soon enough, she says. So, we have our introduction to Shea. So, give you a little background story. Shea and Kingway were not married until this draft. From drafts one through five, Shea Kingway was Ken Price's creative writing professor. She was partially inspired by one of my creative writing professors. And some of the things that she says to Ken throughout the book directly came from that professor. But when I rewrote this book, I decided it would make more sense for her and Kingway to be married because... I needed to give them some sort of relationship that explained the tension between them. And the original idea was that Kingway did not like that there was a woman teaching at Jefferson Tate because Jefferson Tate is a black man school. Spellman College, which is the sort of female equivalent to Morehouse, is for women. And... The story goes that Shea was the, her original name was Shea Calhoun. She was the first woman to attend Morehouse, which that was ludicrous because that would never happen even now just because of Spellman. And uh, admittedly, I didn't really know much about Spellman and Morehouse when I started writing the book in 2011, but believe me, I educated myself. So originally it wasn't an accident that Ken and Leslie were roommates. 
Kingway had sort of orchestrated that in the earlier drafts, and he wanted a way to get rid of both Shea and Ken. So he tried to get them together, and that does happen, and he uses that as blackmail to get them to leave school. Now, in this book, that doesn't happen. So I nixed that idea because, for one thing, it was bad. It wasn't well executed, but um, you'll see later on that this is something that is brought up to Ken by Murray. Murray tells Ken that Kingway is trying to betray him in some way, and that ends up being a lie. But it provokes Ken into taking action. Leslie and I are the only ones left when the family moves back to the table in the dining room. My face is probably red because Leslie rolls his eyes and pulls me along into the other room. I focus on the food to drown out the conversation and the woman I probably I fucked in front of everyone. With billions of other women, I'm sure I can forget her. Maybe I'll find... I can't say that because I told you I wouldn't spoil the first few chapters. Okay. There are other girls all over I can date. I think I like the personality, though. Women want someone who takes interest in who they are, and I'm admittedly more caught up in myself and what I get out of them. I don't see them as inferior, but my lack of a mother figure makes me indifferent to them outside of sex, and I can't recall being a, having a female friend in my childhood. I want to improve my acting, though. I should have a friend who happens to be a woman, and there shouldn't be a motive other than a platonic relationship. I'm still learning what my friendship with Leslie means. If father fakes it, I should too. If you have any questions about uh, Ken, I would not say that Ken is a racist. I wouldn't say that he's prejudiced against people because of how they look. I will say that he is sexist and borderline misogynistic. And that is something that he denies throughout the book to himself, but he does not have a high opinion of women. I can't recall Murray ever discussing women outside of slipping that he dated Allison, my cousin. Um, yeah, that's true. I forgot about that, and I wrote it. When I brought it up to Father, he remarked that Allison got pregnant and Pat took her out of Atlanta for the sake of keeping Walter Grown out of their lives. If you read Demise of the Trinity, you know all about that. Though I never met Walter, Murray didn't speak highly of him either. Um, he's about to meet Walter pretty soon. Anyway, the roast is tender and flavorful, and the potatoes complement the savory aftertaste. I'm going to take a drink of tea. I find that mixing the juices with them makes for a suitable gravy. Leslie goes for seconds, and I see that Shea doesn't finish her potatoes. Does she avoid carbs because she wants to watch her weight or because Dr. Kingway tells her to? She doesn't pitch into the conversation, which he dominates. Miss Kingway, I say, do you teach as well? I'm afraid I didn't progress much after my bachelor's degree, she says. I want to go back for my master's, but I keep putting it off. My mother has a bachelor's in something, I say. My father's an attorney, so she doesn't really have to work. Ken loves bringing up that his dad's a lawyer, doesn't he? Samuel mentioned your father being an attorney. He's pretty enthused about you. Ah, yes, Dr. Kingway points at me again. 
It's admirable that you chose your own path, Mr. Price. It's much easier to follow in your parents' footsteps. I'm sure I'm not nearly as interesting as you guys, I say. How long have you been at Jefferson Tate? I was an undergrad when they erected the statue of Dr. King. He nods. I joined the military afterward. The army promised me that they'd take me around the world, and I ended up in Korea in the 80s. If you're not aware from Demise of the Trinity, there is a fictional war that takes place in my universe in the in Korea. And it doesn't last for very long because Arthur Lindsay ends the war by beheading the head, the dictator of North Korea. After the war, I'd already gotten my doctorate. Teaching is a little less violent than tiptoeing around landmines. While we cleaned our guns in the trenches, Tennessee says, Sam was reading books. Almost a decade later, Kingway says, I met Shea. Figured I'd marry a younger woman because no matter how old I get, she'll always be younger than me. Guess I'm aiming in the wrong direction, I say. Yeah, Leslie says. Ken had an older woman chasing after him yesterday. That cuts the chat, so I owe Leslie. I was trying to engage Shay a little bit because she's like a wallflower. Maybe that's why she married Dr. Kingway. Opposites attract her, so I hear. Darkness floods in through the windows and Tennessee's o- Tennessee offers to drive us back to campus, but we decline. Dr. Kingway briefly stops speaking to say goodnight, and he'll see me on Wednesday. I tell Tennessee and Jeanette bye, though Shea keeps her attention on her husband. There's no reason she should give me another thought tonight. And on the bus back, I consider what the semester means. What does college mean? Will I achieve an education? I don't really have to go to college. Murray came over to the house the week after my father took me to the church. I said hello as I finished my supper because I assumed he was there for father. Instead, father left us alone. Murray sat across from me and pulled out a cigar. I bet this is a confusing time for you, he said. I know it was for me. Sure, I said. Do you know what my dad does, Ken? What do I do for him? Not really. Running a corporation isn't like erecting a building on a field of daisies. It's more like a hovel surrounded by weeds. Someone has to maintain the grounds, you know. That's what your father and I do together. I got what he was saying. People who interfere with Central Network's business got buried. That's probably what happened to my uncle, especially considering Murray got his daughter pregnant. But I respected Murray enough to listen, even if I didn't think it was right. You ever break any bones, Murray said. No. Mommy ever have to put a band-aid on you? I don't think so. So, you never touched the stove and got burned? I'm not retarded, I said. Don't get mad at me for using that word, that's Ken. I have a a story that I recalled in uh, one of my short stories in Disease of Ambition where I quoted my father and he said that word. I don't believe in calling people retarded, by the way. Murray laughed and puffed out smoke, apparently taken with my candor. He thought I was smart, but I think I'm just able to regurgitate information well. Intelligence implies you know how to apply that information, which I didn't. 
it's not like I had a life outside of going to school and staying at home, so there wasn't anything pushing me to learn anything I didn't have to. I read books for entertainment, and I might know a bit more about foreign films and music than most kids my age, but what did I actually know? Hold out your hand, he said. I didn't expect him to press that lit cigar into my palm, but I didn't realize until I felt the tobacco crush into my skin. There was heat, but no pain, and for a moment, I stared at my flesh and wondered why I wasn't screaming. Murray brushed away the black remnants, his face not indicating what the hell he was thinking, but their other hand came at me with a stabbing motion. A pocket knife poked my arm. I found it more annoying than painful. He actually tried to saw into my skin. The knife looked sharp, yet felt dull. I want to explain something to you, Ken, Murray said. I know it'll be a lot to process. See, there's God. He's the creator of everything and represents light. Then there's Satan, who represents darkness. Because God gives mankind free will, you probably realize he doesn't step in every time a little kid is about to get hit by a bus. That bus, that bus crushes that boy and he dies. He simply didn't look before he walked. Anytime someone mentions God or religion, my head wants to retract itself inside of me. We're not a religious family that goes to church or reads the Bible. The only time my parents said God was before a dam. So, who's here to stop the light or dark, Murray asked. Who stands between God and Satan? I wasn't supposed to know the answer, but he said it like I should. I wish he'd given up, told Father I was lost and gone home. Instead, Murray kept revealing more about my nature that I'm trying to forget. I realize that I'm reading this part of the chapter and it doesn't have much to do with Kingway, but I figure people want to hear it. But it is important to understand Ken and the Trinity. Three people, Murray said, no more or less. Since Adam and Eve spawned life, there are three. God invoked the Trinity to maintain the balance. Every new generation two fall, and one continues into the next. But no one else can stop them. You're the new generation, Ken. The moment you were born was the same the last one died. The Trinity, of which I am one, is God's wolf pack, if you will. We're here to kill off the herd so they'll keep running. We die only when the others find us. So, there might be a guy in India who people know as a bulletproof miracle. Maybe he's a hero or a villain, but one day he'll grow enough notoriety that others will come for him. If not, he'll grow old and find them. And no matter what sins we commit, the Trinity always go to heaven. Even now, I can't separate myself from humans. I look at Leslie and I see someone I have a lot in common with. We're flesh and blood with desires, hungers, and morals. The difference is, if this bus crashes and everyone dies, I'll climb out with only my clothes torn. That's why I question my future, because Murray and Father already decided for me. I can join their ranks and murder for a living. There's no need for a degree in English or law, because the only thing I need is a gun and something to aim at. I could take out everyone in the room and take what I want. If I want money, I can take it. 
someone pisses me off, I can break them. Why do I choose to cooperate with society when my abilities exceed mankind's limitations? I don't want to become my father because he accepts the lust and sin. I want friends, a relationship, and something more than a full bank account and a big house. If I follow the path father paved, I'm only gazing into his ass for the rest of my life. So Ken's greatest fear is just to be his father, as it is for many men, and I'm going to take a sip of tea. I think that's a good stopping point for this week, and I'm going to continue on and talk more about King Wei. I really like his character. Hopefully I didn't bore the shit out of you today, and I made it an enjoyable experience for everybody, and you want to go buy my book. And of course, the Kindle version will be out eventually. Maybe sometime in September, maybe October. My next poetry book, Spoiled Rice, will be out in November in paperback. And I will be trying the same thing. What I like about releasing it in paperback is there's no preview on Amazon. So people can't read the first few pages and then make an assumption based on that. They have to actually buy the book. And that delays the whole review process. The book's not even up on Goodreads yet. And I have published a book and had it on Goodreads within the same day. So without a Kindle version, I'm experiencing sort of a relaxed release. And I like that. There's not as much pressure because more people are going to buy the Kindle version when it initially comes out, but in the long run, more people will buy the paperback. That's been the case with all of my books. People, they download the Kindle version and they don't read it. That's, that's generally how it goes, and if they do read it, they usually tell me. But more people who buy paperbacks actually read the book. Now, someone on Twitter challenged me on that, and I know that people hoard books, I'm well aware of that because I hoarded books for a long time. Now I don't buy a book unless I'm gonna buy, unless I'm gonna read it. Now I do have a few on my Kindle I haven't read yet, and it's gonna be a while. Uh, one of them being, uh, I think it's Circumstantial Fortune by Cassandra Mason. I hope I got that title and her name right. She's one of my favorite Twitter accounts, and her Instagram account is also very entertaining. And of course. I've read Zev Good's book all about the Benjamins a couple of times, but I have a few other indie authors on my Kindle that I haven't got around to yet. And most of it has to do with my attention span. Right now I'm reading a Louis Grizzard book to kind of get my interest back in reading, and I'm having a hard time finding um, a moment to even read that, honestly. I don't know if I'll read it today, but I read it on my work breaks and stuff. But enough of that. You're bored. I'm sorry. So next week we will continue our discussion of Price of the Trinity, and I hope you enjoyed this week's. Happy reading, everybody. Goodbye.